Hello, everyone. This is Seamus McGarvey, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben Rock, producer, director. (laughs) Man about town. Man, man's ladies, man. Hey, Ilya Friedman, fine proprietor at Hot Rod Cameras. How you doing? Yeah, you know, um, it's the holidays. It's an interesting time of year. Lots of stuff going on. Very pleased that we've got another episode coming out right now. In fact, uh, one of our returning champions, uh, Seamus McGarvey, this is his third time. Seamus McGarvey. Yeah. So awesome. You interviewed him once. I interviewed him once. And then we interviewed him together on this last one. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Thesis, antithesis synthesis for all you Hegelians out there. So it was very, very exciting to uh, talk to Seamus McGarvey. And I point this out in the interview. Seamus is somebody who makes filmmaking sound like fun. And you get the sense that he just loves doing it. Like he, you know, I, I just, I just love the spirit he brings to his work. And his new work, of course, is Cyrano, the musical adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac starring Peter Dinklage. Just an absolutely beautiful film. It was interesting for me because uh, once upon a time when I was a makeup artist, I actually made the nose for a Cyrano de Bergerac uh, play at the Civic Theater of Central Florida Long once upon a time. <laughs> but this is a Cyrano with no nose. It's Peter Dinklage with a normal sized nose. And it is a musical. It, it, a lot of musicals this year. And it's just gorgeous. Seamus's work is just beautiful and sensual. Just looks like a giant cheesecake. It's 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 so amazing. Now now we do have a close focus, but we're going to save it till after the interview this time, and so we're going to mix it up a little bit. So without further ado, here's our interview with Seamus McGarvey. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. We are here with our third time returning champion, Seamus McGarvey. Holy crap, thank you so much for coming back on the show. We always love to talk to you and your work never disappoints. And uh, you currently have the new movie Cyrano, which is just gorgeous, gorgeous film. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for the invitation, Ben. Hi, Elia. It's good to see you. No, it's great to see you too. And Cyrano de Bergerac is a story that's been told, you know, before on film. I think the last version that I know of, at least, was the Gerard Depardieu version that came out in the 90s. There was also Roxanne with Steve Martin. Your version has a very different look and feel from anyone that I've ever seen before. Can you talk about what were your inspirations and did you look even at the other Cyranos that are already out there? Well, I remember them, but we didn't sort of specifically look at them and, and uh, mm-hmm. study them for the, for our film. Our film had closer roots to the stage play uh, written by Erica Schmidt from the original manuscript. And uh, that starred Mr. Dinklage and Mr. Yeah. Bell. So we had a, a, a different starting point than those previous movies. And it was just it was interesting to sit down with Joe and just mull over how we would depict the story. And I suppose the the big difference is that it's a musical. So that kind of led us into a particular style because the music has a particular feel. So I suppose two things guided us initially, and one was the soundtrack, the script, but then also the place itself where we were Mm -hmm. shooting was Sicily. 
And that was just uh, wondrous. Was that location already kind of baked in when you came on the project or was that something that you guys sought out? Sarah Greenwood, our designer, uh, found and knew about it, so visited it and, and suggested it to Joe. And they went on a preliminary recce, Scott, and, and immediately recognized this was, I think, pre-pandemic, that it would be the perfect place. But then, weirdly, its geography worked so well in our favor once the film was greenlit because all of Italy was in a lockdown and Sicily you know, was an island. And we just basically created a little bubble of people, a troop of actors, technicians. And we went to this place, this town of Noto, a beautiful honey sandstone colored town. And there, were, there was nobody around. We basically, it was, this place had been demolished by an earthquake in 1692. So, so it had been rebuilt with a kind of a cohesive vision. So in the absence of tourists, cars, anybody really, it just felt like it had been designed by, it was a backlot production design. <laughs> we had the run of the place day and night. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it was great. There's going to be a lot more productions now uh, aiming to, <laughs> to start up there. I think there's For going to real. be a whole cottage industries, uh, you know, plot. I mean, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I just loved being there. There were also none of the distractions of bars or, you know, restaurants, that sort of thing, because everything was closed. So it, it lent this really strange, almost monastic focus on the film that we, you know, we would go to the beach at, at the weekends maybe, but everything else was kind of uh, dormant. You know, I think that anytime someone looks to adapt a stage musical, there's probably a bit of fear and trepidation because there's a lot of there's a lot that have come before, and I think everyone hopes that the movie version might uh, be successful, like a Grease, and not end up like a Cats. I mean, uh, it's 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 so <laughs> it's so musicals which work so well in person don't always necessarily translate. Can you talk about a little bit about the process of you going? Okay, so this is a you know a fantastic off Broadway production. How do we uh, turn this into the, to the movie version? What was that sort of uh, discussion like? Well, again, we were guided by the material, by the songs, which are more laconic and lyrical. It, it's not in the style of Hooray for Hollywood musicals. <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've worked on, on films that are more proscenium style and whoosh, like Greatest Showman, which had great songs in it, but it was definitely more of a, a spectacle when yeah. we did musical numbers. For this, it was defined by... Joe being very clear that the the dialogue would roll into the song and, and out again, and that moreover the dialogue and the song the song particularly would, was recorded live right there. So oh the, really? Yeah, I mean everything was all the timbre and the quavers and the and the the accidents that happen in the voice and the performance effectively sort of leads you to into the character so that for them being able to sing a song is just uh it's just wonderful there's a real intimacy to that too like uh you know when you bring up the greatest showman yeah that's like a big showstopper it feels like you're at a giant broadway show but this you kind of feel like you're in the room with them you know it, it feels like very intimate now did that guide the way that you chose to stage it or light it or lens selection any of those things yes 
you know, we had uh, decided early on, we, we had to issue film to shoot on because mm-hmm. there was no way of getting celluloid out to a laboratory and back in again during the pandemic. Um, everything was just in lockdown. So with digital was our friend, worked really well for us. So we shot large format LF, Alexa LF, and we shot with lights lenses. And what I really loved about it was feeling that it was medium format portraiture you know that yeah. was we knew that we were going to for a large part of it although we have great vistas in the movie that we were really going to be focusing in on the face on the performance of this yeah film. and no better faces than dinklage and, and yeah. no you had a great cast junior yeah and it had kind of a uh Barry Lyndon, dare I say, a Barry Lyndon-esque, like very low light feel. Maybe that has to do with the large format and the shallow depth of field. But can you talk about the the visual touchstones you had thought about? Like what, what were the things you were going for? What was True North? Well, yeah, at the, at the start of the film, we had this sort of sense of brio and, and light and overexposure and halation. And we wanted movement and uh, kineticism. Mm-hmm. Just to show the, the the innocence and the and the kind of excitement of of love, and then obviously as we go through it, things start torquing a, a little bit uh, into a more well nocturnal feel for one, but also certainly more stasis in terms of uh, the camera movement. Mm-hmm. And we were also the only set that we built, or Sarah Greenwood and her team built, was the theatre, which was built in our hotel car park, basically. (laughs) um, And we built it outdoors for COVID reasons so that people could all, you know, mingle and everyone had masks on. Uh, Joe's mom made all these sort of medieval masks that had real N95s underneath. Oh, that's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone was kind of safe and and we we sort of were careful with the shots that we didn't have to but there were 150 extras, but being outdoors, it, it helped them. I think we had one COVID case up in, in the rafters who was sort of similarly Oof. out of the building. But the rest of the locations were real locations. They were the Palazzo that were shot Roxanne's apartment in. It was a, somebody's house. House, I should say. It was like a 35-room Palazzo. But um, and all the other locations were real. So in doing so, particularly in night scenes, you're working with candles, but they were sort of gently enhanced. The, the sources that we were using were right up against walls, you know. So, yeah, yeah. I'm also thinking about like there's that scene when Cyrano is going down the staircase and it's lit by torchlight and he's sort of being attacked from every direction. And I'm like looking at that scene thinking it felt like it was lit by those torches, which I know is your intention. But I was curious if you if it was. Well, it was. I mean, I'd liked to project the shadow of Cyrano coming up the stairs. Mm. Uh, but then once they get into that altercation, it was real flame. Uh, That's so I, awesome. I had some lights in the background, but the only difference was I, I tell a, a slight porky pie uh, about that. <laughs> Dinklage, uh, Cyrano has the, the two torches, flaming torches. And he attacks people with them and then actually throws them at a stuntman who bursts into flames. And obviously to do that, you can't use the real stuff, even with stunties, certainly not with the A-list actor like Peter Dinklage. So I had Sparks in Britain, Lee Walters and the team built these LED torches. So we just used that. That was also the sources. 
That was brilliant. So the flame on those torches in particular, I guess, is uh, added in post somehow. Yeah, they're CG flames. And we had to make the LED small enough so that, it, you know, they could wrap a flame around it. Uh, now I need to go watch it again to see if I can spot it. Because, like, I was watching that scene like a hawk. I'm like, this all looks like it was lit by these torches. So I was kind of right. But, uh, but no, no, that's that's brilliant. That's And that's so cool. And if you'd shot on film, I don't know that there's a film stock that would have been sensitive enough to do what you were describing. Is there? No. Well, you'd have to push it so it wouldn't have that... You would it would have been quite grainy at that, that low level. But actually, I was very impressed at how well the flames actually read. You know, sometimes mm. on digital, when you're shooting wide open like that, pretty much wide open, it, it burns out white. Yeah. And uh, we still had color. And uh, that scene was heavily rehearsed. So even though it's apparently one shot, there, there are wipes in there, you know, that obviously flames come past. Yeah. There's a few quick pans that help us cut between it. And Eunice Huthart, who's our stunt coordinator, she sort of shot it on, on the mobile phone, which is always a, a danger in rehearsals. Mm. So she basically, along with Joe and I, basically blocked that scene and uh, to that real staircase. And then we had a great second unit director, stroke DP, uh, Kate Arismendi, who you, you will know, I'm sure. And she's just amazing. So she, we shot a few days and she finished it off with all the, the cutaways and uh, the, the fight and the people coming over the edge and, mm. and Cyrano looking back at De Geish. So we had uh, Kate throughout the whole film and she did some extraordinary work. I've got to give her a shout out. That's great. And I think Second Unit doesn't always get its due and the amount of work that they do. And I, I once talked to uh, Todd Hallowell, who had done uh, Second Unit for Ron Howard on a number of movies. And he said on Apollo 13, he made up T-shirts that said, if it was easy, First Unit would have done it and, <laughs> uh, and gave that to them. So I, I always think it's interesting, you know, because like the place of Second Unit in a movie like this and what they can do and how much they can kind of uh, back you up. Can you talk more about how you go about working with a Second Unit? Well, it's, it's different every film. And sometimes, you know, if it is a, a, an action movie, obviously those people who shoot that sort of stuff know it inside out. And it, it's, it's extraordinary. It's not the sort of cinematography I can even conceive of or think about. So mm-hmm. that's when I love having the second unit. Here was very different because Kate is a brilliant cinematographer. Uh, she was directing the second unit on this one as well as shooting. And where Kate really came into her own was that she and Haley had worked together on Swallow with Joe Wright. Uh, as a one great of, film too. I love that movie. Loved it's it. Super too. creepy. Really. And um, so that rapport that they had and the intimacy as friends mm. was really great because Joe and I did certain sequences, but a few times in the film, we left Haley and Kate together in the room and off they went doing really kind of languid, light suffused shots that that could only happen between two people who are really close and comfortable with each other. It's quite uh, intimate stuff. So that, that, that became part of the every letter sequence in, in a oh. very uh, lovely of, of light. 
Oh, that's that's yeah. Okay, I know ex- exactly the sequence you're talking about. And she's on the bed and the grip and yeah. all the blue flares and everything. Oh, it's beautiful stuff too. We should get her on at some point. Uh, yeah, I mean that. Yeah, she she did great work on that. And you brought up something that I actually uh, that kept popping out at me as I was watching the movie is that I think in a post Children of Men world, there's a tendency to want to do crazy long takes, but a lot of times they draw attention to themselves. And I was watching the movie and I just kept noticing that it, it, it they were never like, oh, hey, look at I can do this with the camera. It was more just like we're going to tell as much as we can in one brilliantly choreographed sequence. And the sequence work was phenomenal. Was that an idea that was brought to you? Was that your idea? And and like how? How do you go about even executing like how much rehearsal goes into some of those because some of them have dozens of extras and stuff in them i'm usually not a great fan of, of big long shots and here's from the fellow shot atonement but um, <laughs> <laughs> all that stuff joe conceives of really and one of the integral parts of cinema for joe is rhythm the extension of it the, the stretching of it and the breaking yeah. of it and the speeding up of it and that's particularly when that's in in kind of concert with song, it's very potent when you can play with those kind of rhythmic elements to photography alongside sound and and, and song. So Joe really has he has a great metronomic head about him. He can almost like I could tell when we're storyboarding, he's storyboarding, there's a beat to the the pictures themselves. And Usually the form of the film is very close to to Joe's little stick insect storyboards that he does. <laughs> and that lovely sort of choreography between actor, camera, director, light, all coalesces. I've got a question that directly fits into what you're talking about right now. You said that you're recording the performances, the singing performances on set as the actors are doing it. Uh, typically, of course, for any of our listeners who aren't aware, usually there's playback and lip sync going on. But b- because of their recording, their their actual performances, I'm assuming they've got some sort of earbud which is playing back music because it, you can't exactly have all the music playing live too, or otherwise that would ruin the recording. And I have to imagine that you can only get so many takes of this too, and it's going to just be so incredibly taxing for the the talent in particular to have to sing these songs, these big numbers, over and over again. So tell us just a little bit about what extra strife it sounds like you must have had to go through because you guys had made a commitment to to do it this way well there was there were a lot of earwigs and you know <laughs> like the fort maniachi when all the soldiers are dancing like all yeah. those soldiers need to have the music in their heads but we can't play it back because you know christians actually singing the song live so we had like a hundred earwigs yeah it, it was fantastically complicated to achieve so I would imagine that it, it was multi-camera during most of these performances so that you didn't have to then reset and do it all from another angle if you needed to cut to something else? Or how, well, how did you? We, we had two cameras, which we rarely use, two cameras, but that one in the, in the fort where all the soldiers are dancing, Kate was on the a camera a profile shot at the same time, just out of shot. But almost, I would say, 85% of the movie was, was done with a single camera. Oh, wow. And this isn't really as much of a cinematography question, but I'm very curious about it. You can't obviously have actors singing their heart out for a 12 hour a day. So did doing the live performance limit how much singing or did when you were scheduling it, was it like, well, we can only spend three hours on a, on a scene that involves singing and then we'll do other stuff? Or how did you break that up? The actors nailed it every time. I mean, they're such, they're all such strong singers and 
you know, we didn't have enough time to shoot it. I mean, it was quite a fast shoot, I think 50 days. That's probably why there are quite a lot of single shots of when the singing happens. They're like, maybe we we cover it from three angles, if, if that. We were economical with our time. And, and usually, I mean, Joe doesn't like a lot of takes anyway. And with, if, if you're working with actors of the caliber we were working with, you know, you're only looking for different options. It's not like, oh, they messed yeah. up. I'm just afraid, like, and I've done a lot of theater work. It's like, I'm just afraid, you know, you're going to blow out someone's voice if you make them sing for five straight hours. And it's, you know, a particularly difficult song. You know, if it's if it's something that's like right in their register, maybe you can go a little longer. But eventually they just won't have voice if you make them sing all day. Yeah, that's true. I think there was a lot of vocal training went into it. Mm-hmm. And everyone was, but it became quite difficult up the hill, up the mountain. In Mount Etna, when when Kelvin Harrison Jr. had to sing that song and by the cannon, and it was brutally cold, like twenty degree minus twenty. Oh man, minus twenty. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Ugh. Yes. Ugh. It was. It yeah. was really, really cold. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> That's stuff. The mountain, though. the mountain erupted at the end of it. Like we literally ran off that thing. Karen. What? Yeah, it, it erupted. Our whole set got covered in in lava. What? Yeah, two two three days later, it was covered. Oh, but it, there was we had ash, ash falling on smoke. us, and the, the mountain. I mean, it was Mount Etna, like you see it in those old paintings from the eighteenth century. It was like a red funnel of of um, of lava going spewing up into the air that is insane like did you have some kind of early warning system in case that happened while you were the volcanologist kept saying don't we know like minimum minimum three days in advance you'll be fine you'll be fine and next thing we heard this and it was just like okay it's a wrap let's get out of here oh my god (laughs) it is one of the world's most active volcanoes it's like it is that is horrifying (laughs) it's like the sword of damocles hanging over you the whole shoot but it's almost like joe when we went up that thing it was still like the clouds were going when we went on a scout and we were all looking at each other going like joe are you sure about this and joe just loves those challenges he he really thinks that it forges something literally i mean yeah, no, <laughs> but I, I didn't want to be forged <laughs> forged in a crucible of actual magma oh my god uh, that's intense because I, I wanted to ask about like because that that whole location and, and that whole kind of chapter of the movie it looks very different than everything else in the movie that just pulled me right in too because it was so different than everything that came before it well it was just we obviously had that nostalgic sylvan christian dior 10 denier stockings opening to the film and and then joe's had this notion of that moment of cyrano and roxanne looking at each other the cut from her face to the visceral monochromatic lithographic landscape was something that was one of the central kind of tent poles of of his photographic and my photographic thinking of the film and we we just pulled all the filters off the camera, the glimmer glass, the the nets, everything, and just shot deep focus with these beautiful lights lenses. And it, they're ultra sharp, unfiltered. But then in the DI, we further attenuated that and, and played with contrasts and mm-hmm. depth and you know vignetting and all that stuff. And there's some nice visual effects work in in that as well, which maintained 
the continuity of of the snow because the snow would we'd arrive in the morning and the place would be covered in snow and then by mid afternoon the volcano heat had melted it off so you know they had to do a lot of work to 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 just extend the snow and to keep some sort of continuity because it was a wee bit a bumpy ride in the, in the rough cut oh man it would be so hard for me to like tune out the fact that i was sitting on top of an active volcano all day long you know what you could do? I mean, I'll say minus 20. If you, if, when your hands got too cold, you just put it through the snow, down into the, into the, the sand. <laughs> and it was, like, it was like putting your hand in an oven. It was hot. So the, the artificial snow that's being created on top uh, for the scene, if you wanted to warm up, you just got underneath the snow and then the ground, the ground, the sand, the sand was, uh, was an oven. <laughs> I just want to... <laughs> The, the conundrum of that, and you th- you know, you think that is cinema, that is filmmaking for you. For real. <laughs> the artifice of that and the, the 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 absolute craziness of it. If you told it to anybody else, it's only filmmaking <laughs> to understand that that madness. <laughs> it's just, I'm, I'm still taking it in. Yeah, that's, this is almost like a giant war story. It's it's like you, you, it, you it don't you, you don't believe that this uh, is real unless unless you hear it from the the people who were there. So it's like it just doesn't it doesn't sound plausible that you, you go through this, but this other scenario is is literally <laughs> bubbling right under the surface. So, <laughs> but Ben, you you were saying about that end coda bit, which yeah. I I love that section and it's so good. I love that song too. That song was. Yeah. one of my favorites in the whole movie. I, I got one question. I'm going to jump back in here. To me, it's it's very interesting, the range of movies that started as a play. And and this is another one just like that. It, it, was, a, it was a play. It was a musical. It became, becomes a movie. Are you guys conscious while you're making the movie that do you start to think, ah, this, this feels like we're watching a stage performance or this feels more like a play? Do you ever think like, oh, we have to, to change what we're doing here, make it feel more like cinema? Or do you lean in more and say, you know what, we actually we like this, this feeling of, of it. And it's a musical. So, of course, it completely uh, shatters all uh, willing suspension of disbelief anyway, because you're just, you know, you're, you've got these people who like, you know, they're 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 so emotional. Their heart is exploding that it's time now to move into song. I know it's a conversation with you and Joe and potentially, you know, the writer and everything else. How do you guys walk that line and find that balance of how much cinema, how much play? How, how does it become this new thing? Well, I suppose the play is is intrinsic. In fact, the the dialogue from the original play and from Erica Schmidt's adaptation of it are the the soul of it because they they are infused with period of the time, and that kind of gives it the kind of the structure, the architecture of the time. Now, me and Joe's Joe and I's uh, natural instincts is for veracity and naturalism in cinema and them speaking in this kind of dialogue is sort of uh, tempered by a, a more i suppose it's more terrestrial approach to the the photography that's interesting and i even sort of felt like when i was watching it in sort of towards the beginning there's a scene that takes place in a theater and that's not an uncommon thing to do in a play you know hamlet obviously uh, you know most famously has that but i almost felt like you were able to meta use that to comment on the fact that it was a play too like the point of that was sort of like this actor is bullshit and 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 here's the real thing when you're watching a movie and you have a play in the movie it it automatically commented on it i I don't know if that was intentional or not 
No, well, absolutely. I mean, the surrounding cordon of set and costume and mise-en-scene mm-hmm. is defiantly operatic and yeah. at times positively camp. It's kind of over the top and playful. And, you know, we I know that Joe wanted it to be at least a vehicle for humour into the movie as well. But- it's, a funny, it's a funny story. There's a lot of humour in it. I mean, the every letter sequence when we're in there, me and Joe are in there with with flashlights, you know, flaring the camera and we're all pulling focus. A gorgeous sequence. We we had great fun doing that because we were like, when we got a particular flare, we were like, hey! (laughs) (laughs) More of that, more of that. No, 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 stop that. I know. It was a a great morning's film in that. We just put down the shutters and, and sort of started playing with light and focus and everything and everyone was having fun like it reminds me of my days doing music videos as well where Mm. you really get into the music and it becomes a sort of symbiosis of of actor camera light and place and everything works together and everyone's having this little waltz with the with the the, with the dance you make it sound like so much fun i mean seriously Oh my I, God. I, I know, I, but like, I feel like we get so serious about making movies and you make it sound like, <laughs> like the most fun. I, I think I'm sort of maybe slightly pathologically happy about being a, a cinematographer. So I, it, that takes me through the really fucking difficult times of being a cinematographer when mm. shit is hitting the fan. I'm not just saying it's, it's a joy the whole time. It can be real grueling times, but what really is the the salve, the balm for that is when you see a movie up there that actually works. I mean, I've worked on some turkeys, but like when a movie works, like Cyrano, I believe, uh, definitely does. Um, it it's it makes everything worthwhile, all a little, and it's just it's like a an errant family when you're away with your cinema troupe you have little spats and arguments and it's like dinner table kind of, well, he didn't, he's got more peas than I have. You remember as a kid. <laughs> All those things that, that families have with each other. Like you've been in the toilet for the last half an hour, get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> All that stuff is, is forgotten about when you, when you see the final movie. I saw a meme the other day where someone was talking to a friend that's, uh, or to a person. They said, oh, I made a friend the other day. And they said, wait a second. Is it a real friend or a set friend? And he goes, oh, it was a set friend. So, and it's like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, it's true. You, 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 have, you, you come together. You have a family. You go through all the things that a family has. And then you go your separate ways. And maybe you get to do it again someday. You get to and do it again. Before you them, do so. that, you, you run around on wild horses and torch the village. And, ah, and <laughs> run out of town. I mean, it's not as, quite as like that, but it, it's kind of a good <laughs> allegory. Well, that's awesome. I think that that's a, an amazing place to leave it. And again, you, you just make it sound like the most fun, which is what it should be. And also sometimes you're sitting on top of an al- active volcano, which it often is. But thank you. You're, you're an inspiration and, and your work is amazing. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for asking me, Ben. Thanks, Ilya. Our pleasure. So that was Seamus McGarvey. Thank you so much for coming back on the show, Seamus. Always great to talk to you. And everybody listening to the sound of my voice, please go check out Cyrano. Cool. So mixing up our, our order a bit today, we, we, we start <laughs> off right into the interview. Boom. Very little preamble, very little stuff. But now we're going to dive into close focus, close focus today. Uh, we actually have some uh, some unfortunate news, uh, uh, 
good friend of the show, someone who's been on the show before, Jean-Marc Vallier, uh, unfortunately, tragically, uh, suddenly passed away at the age of 58, um, just after Christmas. And um, yeah. And for those of you who don't who don't know his name off the top of your head, he was the director of Dallas Buyers Club, uh, Sharp Objects and Big Little Lies. And, uh, you know, just just an amazing filmmaker and a, and a real tragic loss. And our hearts go out to, you know, obviously his his family, people who knew him and people who worked with him. But uh, also, you know, as film viewers, we got uh, a lot of a lot of great work out of uh, him over the years. And uh, and it's just a real loss. But Ilya, you had the opportunity to interview him uh, a few years ago at South by Southwest, right? Uh, I did. And it was a nice little interview. And uh, I think we'll actually play a clip right here. So um, if you want to watch the whole thing, it's only a few minutes long. You can go to the Cam Noir website and we'll have a link there where, where you can watch the whole thing. But uh, we're going to play a little clip of it right now and then we'll come back. I'm being a little bit of a dictator and say, no, you can't use any reflector any flag, any spot. I want the space for the actors and the story. Can you accept this? If you don't, I'm gonna to go to another guy. So the, so the first thing he said, okay, this is what you wanna do? I'm gonna to try to make this work. How many DPs are ready to say yes to this? And to say to style their, their images, I'm gonna give priority to the director and his acting and his story. And then my images, all right, I'm going to do the available light thing and shoot 360. I'm going to control it here live on the spot and in post. Try to fix what we fuck up. It's, it's a great space of freedom and it's using the technique to serve that. Not put style there. We're aware that we're creating a style with this kind of thing. But it's not put it above what's important first things first and the first thing that is so important is the emotional content in the story so that was uh, Jean-Marc Vallier on the cinematography podcast a few years ago at the South by Southwest Film Festival I was really glad that I uh, got the opportunity to chat with him and uh, he will be missed he's a, he's a huge talent for sure serious serious loss and now, short ends. So Ben, since we've changed the order of things, it's now short end time. Uh, is there an obsession or something that you've got going on this week that uh, that you want to share with our listeners? I do. And it was something that my wife had to kind of convince me to watch. It's a series on uh, HBO Max that I, I wasn't too sure about it because I was like, too real. <laughs> and it's called Station Eleven. And it's on HBO Max. And I guess a lot of people are watching it. I hadn't really heard that much about it. Like, I hadn't seen that much marketing on it. it the, the thing about it is that makes it feel a little too real. I guess it's based on a book. It predates the pandemic, but it's about a pandemic that wipes out most of, of civilization. And it's, you know, not easy to watch given that we're still sort of dealing with this pandemic ourselves. But I have to say, it is absolutely gorgeous looking. The acting is really amazing. 
I, I guess the pandemic as portrayed in this movie is just sev- more severe enough than the one we are still kind of, you know, hopefully almost out of that it, because it's devastating. And I mean, it's like from the moment that everyone realizes there's a pandemic to like when the main characters lose all their family is seemingly, you know, a, a couple of days at most Be- because of that. I feel like it's just that much more exaggerated and it has a little bit of a feeling of what I used to love about JJ Abrams show lost in that, you know, mm. you kind of meet these characters and then you kind of go back in time and figure out how they all got to where they got to. And there's just some amazing acting going on in it. And it, and again, it, it just, it, it looks great. It has kind of a, an epic feel in a sense, but also very personal. It kind of centers on one character. And uh, so if you have HBO Max, I think it's a, it's a really good show to check out. I have to say that I've been kind of pacing myself with it because uh, it is so close to real life that it's uh, it's a little much to take all at once. So I haven't been binging it, but, you know, I'll watch, you know, I, I came into it, I think, when like the fourth episode had dropped. So, you know, it was like eh, spaced it out by a day or so and I was OK, but uh, it, it's really well done. I would love it if more people were talking about this show. Uh, you know, I really like Mackenzie Davis, too. I thought she was a real highlight in Halt and Catch Fire. Uh, I really enjoyed that series, and I'm looking forward to her returning to a, uh, to a to a series like this. I don't think I've seen anything else with her except for maybe a couple of parts in, in movies since then, so I haven't seen her do another series, so this will be interesting. Yeah, and I, and I would love to make a shout-out to the... Uh, there's three cinematographers on the series, uh, Steve Cozens, Daniel Grant, and Christian Springer. They're all just doing uh, amazing work. It's it's the kind of show that like is supposed to feel like the real world and big, interesting things are happening. And, and I, I love the approach, the, the visual approach to it. I can't wait to check it out. I haven't seen it yet. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Definitely give it a shot. So, Ilya, what is uh, your pet obsession of this week? I'm back on lenses. You know, uh, I I think I've talked about it before. Some of the uh, (laughs) the best, uh, highest quality and cost effective lenses that you can buy out there is from a company called Tokina. They're not a sponsor of the show, but they make some really fine lenses. And, you know, we sell them over at high. I own a few Tokina lenses, love them a lot. And, you know, I am not taking credit for this, but the president of Tokina USA asked me a while ago what focal lengths I thought would be great for them to add to the to the set to line up and i'm pretty sure i said two i said 29 and 21 and just today they announced they're gonna come out with the 29 and the 21 so uh, i i maybe i should just take all the credit for this but uh i, I think that other you people should. now now <laughs> I, I gotta know why those two specific focal lengths okay so they go 18 to 25 right now which is and then to 35 which is which are pretty big jumps and uh on the wider side in particular you usually find cinematographers wanting more nuance wanting more subtlety wanting more variations as you get l- longer focal length it's really not as um, it's not as crucial to have so many options but when you look at high-end professional sets sets that um, that have 10 focal lengths 11 focal lengths usually they're they're much more heavily weighted on focal lengths 40 and wider now the 18 that Tokina makes mm-hmm. is amazing it's also quite large and I hope that the 21 and the 29 are both uh, significantly smaller and lighter than the 18, which will really, I think, uh, kind of change the the fate of that set so much. The 25 is a fine size; it's not it's not too big, but the 18 is. 
now granted it's it's an incredible lens but it's a it's a big chunk of metal and glass to, to put on the front of a camera so 21 18 21 25 29 now there's a lot of focal lengths under 35 and you'll you'll see this amongst all the, the major manufacturers and it's because really you you want to be able to fit in exactly the right dimensions and when you're working with uh, longer focal lengths i think it's it's easier to, to to cheat a little to move a little and to make it happen when you're working in small confined spaces every millimeter counts and if you don't want to be on a zoom for whatever reason or you don't have the space for a zoom Having those wide-angle primes is really key, and uh, I love that Tokina is really paying attention. They're being used; these lenses are being used on Ted Lasso, and uh, so if you like the way that show looks, it's mm. a, you know the whole show is shot on Tokina lenses, which is cool. So anyway, I, yeah, I think it's I think it's cool that um, a company out there is paying attention to the market, paying attention to what people are asking for, paying attention and to what, paying I, what I'm attention asking to for. You, yeah, I know it was nice. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. It was like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. I think the thing I said really was 29, and then I, yeah, if they had the ability to to throw in a 21, that they should do that too. But yeah, I'm I'm glad they did it for both. 29 is a great focal length. It's really really fantastic. I need to go. Uh, I need to go to your place and look. Once they have it out, I would be interested to like throw the twenty nine and you know a thirty five on on two cameras and just kind of look at the difference and how subtle it is. It's not that subtle, depending on how close you are to your subject. And a lot of uh, DPs like to put the camera pretty close, and um, yeah, it, they really kind of render differently. Yeah, I'm sure, like you said, when as you get wider, every millimeter really does make a big difference. Yeah, just stick your face close to your webcam. You'll you'll see qu- how quickly that distortion and how that focal length matters. It really does change uh, the way the face looks. It's it's pretty amazing. I hope I really hope you were the one that convinced them to do it. I think that's great. Yeah, I, I hope so too. They they listened to me last time with the forty and the sixty five. So so I guess it's no it's no wonder they they listened to me again. I guess those were were pretty popular too. But for the people out there who are big fans and who really want a premium set of lenses at what is essentially a very modest price, uh, it's really difficult to, to beat the Vistas. They're, they're great lenses and cover, you know, full frame and beyond. They'll, they'll cover 65 millimeter, which is astounding. That's awesome. Uh, so, so Ben, it, it was a relatively short and sweet episode this week. Uh, let's find out where people can get more Ben Rock in their life if they if they want it. Where, where can people find you? Uh, number one place, go to Facebook and join the Needs a Werewolf group and uh, and say hi and, and, and pitch me some of your movie ideas adding a werewolf in. Other than that, please go to BenRockOnline.com and you can find all my socials there and you can check out my reel and you could listen to the entirety of Video Palace. And maybe one day I'll even have a link to the project I'm working on now that I can't talk about yet. Yay. I can't wait for that day. How about yourself? Uh, well, I joined your needs a werewolf club, but I haven't yet investigated, but I, I do see them sort of appearing in my feed now. And boy, it, it could be almost anything that needs a werewolf. Turns out I, it, it's really true. Like the sky is the limit when it comes to werewolf. And I, and I say beyond, like I, I have a, a whole pitch for werewolves on the moon project that I want to do, but, uh, oh, wow. uh <laughs> well, because in space, the moon is always full. Uh... <laughs> Come on, man. Anyway, (laughs) you know, the first astronauts, a lot of them were dogs. It it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it. (laughs) I I love where this is going. Uh, Okay. So where where can people find you? (laughs) 
<laughs> they can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. We're busily remodeling, and once uh, all of the remodel is finished, I'll, I'll, I'll post and share something about it at the places. I, I'm, I'm moving stuff around and throwing things out and doing minor construction. It's, it's good times. So, uh, yeah. it's a, How long have you been in that building now? Five years. For a long time. That's so hard to believe. I know. And I just renewed the lease for a few more. So we'll be uh, we'll be there for a while. It's just crazy to think about that because I just remember like sitting in your old space and doing these interviews at, at the bar that you had in the old space. We would set up the two microphones there. And we'd have people, you know, like Mike Mickens or Christian Seabalt or whatever sitting there. And, you know, it's just those were humble beginnings it's been five years yeah that, that was hum, hum, humble times uh but that was actually our second space that after moving out of my garage so garage to then a, a 300 square foot room and then a 2,000 square foot space so spread over two floors and now we're like 7,000 square feet or something like that and I don't even know how big the next building will have to be but hey uh, a few years away don't have to think about that right now I'm just remodeling <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Uh, anyway, well, cool man. So, uh, yeah, uh, find me over there. Uh, let's thank some people. Who, who do we have to thank today? I mean, uh, today I think we have to thank Ben Katz more than anyone else, man. We're putting him through the ringer on this episode. Ben Katz, our editor, who uh, works hard to make us not sound like idiots. I think we set a record for false starts on recording the host raps today. <laughs> you I know think, what? I think we absolutely <laughs> set a record. Uh, then we should obviously thank Alana Cody, who has been kicking all the ass. We have some amazing interviews still coming up. It's Oscar season, so we just luckily getting to talk to a lot of the people who've shot some of the movies that hopefully we'll be seeing in the Oscar race. We have, we have a few coming up, so very excited about uh, the ones we have coming up. And last and never least, Kay's Alatrachi who uh, provided every scrap of music that you heard in this entire episode. And you know what? I think we should also thank Assemble.TV. Assemble.TV, who we didn't do a shout out at the beginning, but I think, we, you know, as a company, we should throw them into our thank yous. Uh, they're, they're offering all of our listeners a free month of their service if they use the promo code CINEPOD, which is, which is us, C-I-N-E-P-O-D. You throw that in there and you get a month free of their service. Hey, thanks so much, Assemble.TV. Yeah, it's a great service. Totally worth it. If you got a project coming up, hey, if you have a project that's only going to take you a month, you'll get like basically all their services for free for your entire project. It'll be great. Yeah, in, indeed it will. So, uh, so check out assemble.tv. So that about wraps us up. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.